Give us a love for you here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So just bear with me. We're just going to break some of these things down and really study this out here tonight. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he begins by saying there's going to be perilous times and perilous men who will come. There's going to be deception. There's going to be false teachers, false prophets. In the first century church, there were plenty of them already. And they were going to continue to increase in frequency. Wherever there is something that is highly sought after, wherever there is something that is costly and worth having, there will always be a counterfeit of that thing. If you have a Timex watch, nobody is producing counterfeit Timex watches because they're not highly sought after, are they? Because they don't cost a whole lot. But you're going to find counterfeit Rolexes, counterfeit tags. You're going to see counterfeit Louis Vuitton and Dooney and Burke purses because they are highly sought after, they're highly prized and highly valued. And so the devil, he, he knows that the truth of the Word of God is a sole source of spiritual transformation, of knowledge in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he endeavors to counterfeit that which is precious and valuable. And that is our source of truth, which is the Word of God. And we know that the devil who goes about as an angel of light, masquerading as an angel of light, he doesn't go around with a pitchfork and and a a spiky tail. He goes about as an angel of light, and he, he gives something that is almost true. Almost true. That's what the enemy does. And the perfect or the greatest protection from falsehoods, from false teaching, is to know what is real. The greatest protection from false teachers, false prophets, from charlatans that you may every once in a while see on the television, the way by which you can identify and the reason you're not going to send them your seed of $100 of $500 or $1,000 because you know the Word of God and you can identify and say, that is false. Because I'm not going to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and the cunningness of men because I have the Word of God and it's going to protect me from falsehood. It's going to protect me from the devil masquerading as an angel of light. So it's absolutely paramount that we know the truth of the Word of God. And supremely, the word of God that emanates from him is given to us through what we call the Bible, the word of God, the canon of scripture composed of 66 books, the Old Testament and New Testament, written over a course of many thousands of years with over 40 authors, all compiled together that make up the canon of scripture called the Holy Bible. And that is our sole source of authority. The shepherd's sole source, my sole source of authority and nourishment for you is the word of God. He told Timothy, preach, not Timothy, don't preach Paul, don't preach Apollos, don't preach Peter, preach the word. And it is the authority of the word that any house of God must stand upon. The the greatest tool in the hand of a minister is the word of God. It is not his, his supposed um, skill at public speaking. It's not his charisma. It's not his ability to be convincing. It is the word of God that he holds in his hand. In the same way that the natural shepherd in the field, he has a rod and a staff. 
That rod and staff, they protect the sheep. It leads the sheep. It, he uses it to guide them into green pastures that they may not lack and they may be nourished with good, green, and, and healthy pasture. So the man of God uses the word of God to lead and to direct the people of God into healthy, green pastures that they may grow thereby. We have come to a state in the church, and it's, it's, it's been like this, and it's continued to be like this, where the Word of God has become too much of a boring thing. It has become something in which does not gravitate people by the crowds, and it is something that is um, not all that exciting. And so ministers have to revert to doing a sermon series over the, late, the latest Avengers movie or somehow making some sort of sermon series out of the latest trend of culture. And they have abandoned the foundation and authority of Scripture as their sole source of doctrine, of teaching, of exhortation. And they've resorted to something else that will tickle men's ears and make people feel comfortable sitting in the seats of the church. But it is the authority of the Word of God. It is the Word of God, the Bible, that must have supremacy as the sole source of authority and nourishment in the house of God. And furthermore, the word of God must be the final authority in the house of God. Everything we do must be based upon the word of God, not tradition, not just because that's how he's always done it, not because that's how my mom and dad taught me, not because that's a denominational um, adherent, but it, is it true according to the word of God? Will I, will I make the decision to be conformed to what I read here in the Word of God or be conformed to the sayings of men, to be diverted or distracted by the traditions of men? And furthermore, when it comes to the supremacy of Scripture, Jesus must have supremacy in the supremacy of Scripture. So the Bible is the supreme authoritative source for this church, for our lives, for the Christian. It is life for us. And supremely in the scriptures, Jesus must be supreme. He must be preeminent because it is all of the scriptures that point to him. All of the Old Testament and New Testament are pointing to the Christ, which is Jesus Christ. If you look here in 2 Timothy Chapter 3 and verse 15, he encourages Timothy, first of all in verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish women. His father was a Greek. And he, he was greatly blessed by a, a Jewish, godly Jewish heritage. And he was raised up. In, in the tradition of Judaism, and he, he truly knew the Old Testament scriptures. You continue the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, or the sacred writings, they're often referred to as, which is the Old Testament, which are, here it is, here's the supremacy of Jesus and the supremacy of scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. He's saying, cling to those things which you learned from your childhood, the sacred writings. 
Here's what they're able to do. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It is the intended goal of the Holy Spirit in writing the Word of God that you would come to the revelation and knowledge that there is salvation through Jesus and Jesus alone. The Old Testament scriptures were intended to point to the Savior, intended to point to the Messiah who was the promised seed of Abraham. He said these scriptures, their primary goal, their supreme goal is to make you wise through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you pick up the Bible and you come to any other conclusion, you've missed it. If you miss Jesus in the Word of God, you've missed everything. Because the Word of God makes no sense except that Jesus is there in the middle of it. And so, <clears throat> he makes it very evident that even in the Old Testament Scriptures, it is those that point to Jesus Christ. The Scriptures reveal that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of truth. As we read in Hebrews 1, and one, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, okay, Old Testament Scripture, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. In times past, the Scriptures written by the fathers and the prophets God spoke through them in veiled language, in veiled terms, through symbols and shadows and types. And now Jesus is the express image. He is the express image, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He is the ultimate revelation of truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, John 1.17 says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law was there to be a schoolmaster, to be a tutor, to lead you along, to eventually get you to the final, the final answer and remedy to it all, which is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. The reason this is very important is because, listen, you can listen to a lot of impressive preaching and teaching, but if it never draws you to the person of Jesus Christ, there's something lacking there. If anyone ever speaks on, let's say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they do not come back to the supremacy of it so that you can be and see Jesus in a greater light and be more like Jesus and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's made to be something else, you've lost, you've lost the, the point, haven't you? And, and we can talk about end time events and get lost in the book of Revelation and go on and on and on and on. And you can be an end times uh, expert. But if ultimately you're not presenting the person of Jesus Christ, the end time events mean nothing if you're not prepared for them in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of things that can be said in the church and you end up not even speaking of the supremacy of the one by whom the scriptures are intended to write about, which is Jesus Christ. 
And so there's a lot of fluff out there, a lot of things that may be impressive. But ultimately, how does it relate back to the person of Jesus Christ, how it can be more like him, his righteousness, his holiness, as it relates to my life being conformed to his. Jesus is the center of it all. And furthermore, the scriptures reveal that Jesus is a sole source of salvation and freedom from sin. So he is the ultimate source and revelation of truth, of objective, authoritative truth. And furthermore, he is the source of salvation and freedom from sin. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am I am the fleshly manifestation of truth itself. And I being the truth shall make you free. I am. I am the authority, the objective authority of truth. No one can claim that Jesus was a good guy and yet not the Son of God. Those are incongruent. If you read uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a wonderful classic, he talks about He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You ever heard that? It's, it's not good enough to say, as some religions do, and maybe even people who are not Christians who say, yeah, Jesus was a real historical figure. He really lived. He was a great guy, a prophet, maybe even. He had great teachings. I think everything he taught is just wonderful, and I agree with it. But I don't think he's God. I don't think he's the Son of God. Well, you're either making Jesus a liar because he said he was God. He said he was the way to God. Or you're making him a lunatic in that he is absolutely crazy, was delusional, and was making these outlandish, outrageous claims concerning himself. And so he's just, he's, he should be in an insane asylum. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he really is who he says he is. He can't be just a good prophet and not the son of God. He has to be who he says he is. And so, he said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, they all point to Jesus Christ. And this is so important because there are many people who sit in a church pew every single week and they hear scripture and they may hear things, but they never come to knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. It's moral theism. It's precepts presented, but it does not laud the supremacy and lordship and the saving power and of his blood and of the cross it does not point to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Word of God will always call you, ultimately, to bow down to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if, you're belie- if you believe in any other kind of Bible, I'll put it that way, it's not the true Word of God. Because Jesus is, is central to it all. And so the Word of God is intended to always point us to Christ. And if ever... A preaching or a teaching ever detracts from the person of Jesus Christ, then there's something missing in that presentation. And so, turn with me very quickly, hold your place, go to Acts 8, hold your place in 2 Timothy.
I'm going to cover a few more things and then we'll come back to and break down 2 Timothy 3 and 16 and 17. Talk about what the Word of God is profitable for. But I just want to make it very clear how important the Scriptures, how important they were to the early church, to the apostles, to the disciples, to Paul, to Peter, to Timothy, to all these men, how important the Word of God was to them. It was what they established the church upon and how they used it in their evangelism and proclaiming the Word of God. If you look at Acts 8 and 30, I'm not going to be too exhaustive. I don't read too much. But if you recall, uh, Philip, the Lord directs Philip to go to a particular place, and he sees a, an Ethiopian eunuch who is in his chariot, and he's reading the Old Testament scriptures. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And the Lord directs him to go and go talk to this Ethiopian eunuch. And look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So just what I, what I just said, it's about to be reiterated and confirmed by the way in which Philip himself used the Old Testament scriptures, which are wise to bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ. And so this scripture, Philip says, I'll explain it to you. So the 34, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And it would appear he used continuous scripture of the Old Testament to reiterate the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah to the Jewish people. And so much he preached it powerfully. He preached it convincingly. He preached it by the power of the Holy Spirit that he said in verse 36, Now as they went down the road and came to some water, and the eunuch said, See here. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why is it making you to come to faith in Christ Jesus? Go over to uh, Acts 17, real quick. A few verses here. Acts 17.1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Their, their source of authority 
And the point of reference by which they preached the word of God was not their own authority. It was what the Lord, first of all, as apostles in the New Testament, what the Lord gave them. But the foundation was the Old Testament scriptures, which all testified as to the person of Jesus Christ. Lastly, one more scripture. Go over to verse, chapter 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And what I'm trying to reiterate over and over is that if the first century Christians, the disciples and apostles, the authority that they stood upon was the word of God, which established the supremacy of the word of God and the supremacy of the lordship of, of Jesus Christ, that is the standard for us as well. You understand? That, that is what we must contend for as well, that we will stand upon the word of God and not upon the doctrines of men, not upon the traditions of men, because there is nothing else except the truth that makes men free, and the truth is supremely expressed through the word of God and through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you get sidetracked in any other way, you're detracting from the true gospel message. So once again, we're going to come back to 2 Timothy, but once again, the ultimate purpose in Scripture is this, to make us wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is why the first order of business, the first task for the pastor is to feed and protect the flock by giving them the Word of God. The Word of God. I pray to God to help me to understand the word, to rightly divide it, to interpret it, and then to clearly and precisely and powerfully give it to you that you may grow thereby. That is my greatest desire is that I would know the word of God for my benefit, for my family's benefit, but also for you. You've heard it said, as the pulpit goes, so go the people. And the pulpit can lead people astray. The man of God can lead so many people astray because the word of God is not rightly divided. It matters what we believe. It matters what we are standing upon for what we say we believe. It matters not just that we stand on the word of God, but that we stand upon it while rightly dividing it and studying it and properly applying it to our lives. It's, it's, it's very important that we understand it as the Holy Spirit gave it and wrote it and has given it to us for our benefit. So, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the last two verses of that chapter. Verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to draw out some things with this. And so, as I said earlier... The greatest defense against false teaching is right teaching, is the truth. 
The greatest defense of, against false teaching is the truth. Clint works at a bank. I'm sure they, they put their tellers through a training program by which they should determine what is a real bill and a fake bill. A dollar bill, a $5 bill, 10 a $100 bill. And unless you have an understanding of what the true is, you'll never be able to identify the counterfeit when it comes. If you've never seen and handled a real $100 bill, somebody could hand you a rainbow-colored piece of paper and it says 100 and for all you know, that's a real $100 bill. If you don't have the real thing to compare it to, that's been confirmed to be the real thing. So the greatest defense and greatest protection from false doctrine, from false teaching, is to know the truth. To know the truth. So that when you hear something, when somebody is telling you something, you know, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't line up with what I know. When, you, when you're watching something on TV, you see how ridiculous it is because I know the truth of the Word of God. It's not going to appeal to my flesh because it sounds good to my carnal ear, to my carnal flesh. But by the Spirit, I can discern, and by knowing the Word of God, that this is not what is right, what is true. And you can only be protected from it if you know the truth of the Word of God. You do not, you do not, you do not absorb the Word of God by osmosis. It's, it's by giving yourself over to it, by delving into it, by studying it, by opening the words, receiving it by the Holy Spirit. So here's what Clark said. Adam Clark, false doctrine cannot prevail long where the sacred scriptures are read and studied. Error prevails only where the book of God is withheld from the people. And you saw for centuries when the Roman Catholic Church became the universal church, quote-unquote, it became politicized, and used as a tool of power and, and fear over the people, what, what was the biggest thing they withheld from the people? The word of God. Because they wanted to keep them in ignorance. So it was a, as a means of power manipulation over them. And at all costs, and whatever it took the Catholic Church to do it, they would persecute anybody who tried to translate the scriptures into the native tongue of those people. William Tyndale was martyred simply because he was trying to translate the Word of God into the native tongue. They hated him so much after he had been buried for some time, some time they declared him as a, as a heretic, they exhumed his body, and they burned his bones. And his crime was translating the Word of God so people could understand it. That is a work of the devil, to keep people in ignorance and to keep them Keep them from exposure to the truth, which makes men free. So, you know for sure the devil wants to keep you away from the Word of God. He wants to keep you away from the authority of the Word of God prevailing in your life. He wants to distract you. He wants to drive a wedge between you and the supremacy of Scripture in your life. He wants to confuse you in your mind and make you look any, elsewhere but I want to encourage you, make the word of God supreme in your life. So, look here at verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if you recall in verse 15, he says, From childhood you have known the holy scriptures, or the sacred writings, 
we see often throughout the text, which refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. But in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the first century church, it was already understood that the apostles, that their writings came with authority, came with apostolic authority. And if you recall, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, where Peter talks about there's some hard things that Paul writes. There's, there's some lofty, deep things that Paul writes. And men who are unlearned and untrained in the truth, they take them and they twist what he, write, what he writes for their own destruction, as they do with other scripture. So Peter, a counterpart or a contemporary of Paul, esteems the writings of Paul as scripture, like the other scripture. And you can check that out at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. That Peter places on par at the same, has the, declares that Paul's writing has the same weight and authority as other scripture. So it was understood very, very, very soon, very um, early in the first century, that those who were, had apostolic authority, that is the 12 disciples and Paul, what they wrote was God-breathed in addition to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, you could go on for days talking about how the canon of Scripture came to being, how we have the original autographs. The original autographs is the, 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 the original piece of paper that Paul wrote on with his own hand. That's the original autograph. And then there was manuscripts made, copies, and, and, and dispersion of these copies, and scribes. And there was, you could go on forever and ever talking about how all this came into being and how we have the, the canon of Scripture. And it wasn't actually until the 5th century that I can't even remember which, which um, gathering it was of the church fathers that um, the canon of Scripture was finally decided by the church fathers and the book of Revelation was, was finally included. Um, in regards to church history. We could go on for days in regards to that, from really from the apologetic side and just from the historical perspective. But we'll not do that here tonight. So he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word, inspiration of God, it literally means God breathed. Inspiration of God means God breathed. That it is God's voice. It is God's word. It is God's heart being being dispensed through this human vessel of the New Testament. And so thus, if it is God-breathed, the word is life-giving. It is alive. It is real. This, this right here, the word of God, it is the word of God. It proceeds from the throne room of God. Right here, what you have in your hands. And you've heard me mention this earlier, and I think I heard this on Facebook, read this on Facebook somewhere where it says, don't say that God is not speaking to you if your Bible is closed. Never say, I just, don't, I just can't hear what God is saying. He's not, he won't speak to me if your Bible is closed. This is not some dusty words on the page. This is not the letter. This is life. This is breathed by God, written by the Holy Spirit. This is life. This is, li this is powerful. This has the ability to save and to deliver people because it is the truth that emanates from the throne room of God. So it is God-breathed. And furthermore, it, Peter reiterates how Scripture is given to us. 
He, he says in 2 Peter 1 and 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, by, by, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That is how Scripture was given to us. And I want you got to understand this very clearly. As I read one Bible commentator, he said this, It's important to note that inspiration applies to the original autographs of Scripture and not the Bible writers themselves. You understand what I'm saying? He is saying all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What he's saying is there is the Bible writers, they are, I'm sorry, there are no inspired Scripture writers only inspired Scripture. Does that make sense? God breathed the Scriptures. So identified is God with His Word that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Scripture is called the oracles of God and cannot be altered. The Scriptures. God used a human vessel inspired and moved upon by the Holy Spirit to write as the Lord told Him to write and it is God breathed. It is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this right here, this is why it's so powerful and profitable and supremely important that the Word of God be foundational to your Christian walk. And this is why Paul could tell Timothy, you can use the Word of God, Timothy, in your pastoring and your daily living and and, in leading the people of God. It is the Scriptures. It is the Word of God. It is the truth that comes from the throne of God. This is why it's profitable, Timothy. It's it's God-inspired. It's Holy Spirit inspired. It's breathed by God Himself. And so, therefore, that brings us to the latter part of verse 16. And is profitable. That means helpful, useful, serviceable. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So number one, it's profitable for doctrine. I cannot stand to hear this phrase. Doctrine never saved anybody. You ever heard that? All you need to do is just love Jesus. We don't need to get all into that doctrine stuff. And it's, it's, it's usually somebody who doesn't necessarily value the word of God, but they, they, they like to get caught up in the motions of loving God and God loving me. And doctrine never saved anybody. Let me tell you, here's what doctrine is. Doctrine is simply this. It is scriptural teaching on theological truths. You can see the word doctrine throughout the New Testament, how that Paul says, continue in the doctrine I've given you. Here's doctrine. Here's doctrine. Justification by faith. That's doctrine. Salvation by faith through grace in Jesus alone. That's doctrine. The lordship of Jesus Christ. That's doctrine. The sonship of Jesus Christ. That's doctrine. Adopted into the family of God for the children of God. That's doctrine. It's anything that is taught by the Bible. It is scriptural teaching on theological truths. It is a body of teaching, systematic teaching that is presented so that you can understand the truth of what emanates from the heart of God. 
Doctrine is the truth of Scripture, given to us in such a way that we can understand, receive by the Spirit, and be conformed to it. Doctrine is not just information. And usually when somebody says doctrine never saved anybody, it's usually them thinking doctrine is just this heady bits of information. It's this, these long um, uh, scholarly articles written about um, lofty theological truths, which is not true. Doctrine is absolutely necessary for your salvation because doctrine is concerned with presenting to you the truth. And you cannot come to saving knowledge and faith except that you have the truth. And that is what doctrine is. It is instruction. Literally, that word means teaching or instruction. Doctrine is indispensable to Christianity. Christianity does not exist without it. The New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the value and importance of sound doctrine, sound instruction, and a pattern of sound teaching. The apostles defended the faithful proclamation of the gospel. They formulated Christian faith in doctrinal terms, then called for its preservation. They were adamant about the protection, appropriation, and propagation of doctrine because it contained the truth about Jesus Christ. Knowing the truth was and is the only way that a person can come to faith. And so while the Bible does have historical facts and has information in it, the fact that Jesus was crucified, that's an historical fact, but it's not doctrine. Here's doctrine. Jesus' death grants us forgiveness for sins. Now we're getting into doctrine. Now we're getting into what the Lord, what, the, what the, the, the Father teaches concerning the truth and the meaning of what's happened in the Scriptures and its implication for us as creatures who are to receive it. Listen to this. There is an indispensable link between spirituality and doctrine. Listen, as I have a higher understanding and view, again, not by the carnal mind, but as I have a, a greater knowledge and depth and revelation, as I read the Word of God, made real to me by the Holy Spirit who wrote it, who confirms to me, who teaches me as my teacher, as I read it and as I have a higher understanding, a higher view of Scripture and a higher understanding of doctrine and the things of God, I can worship, I can have higher worship. The more I know of who God is, His character, what His thoughts are towards me, what he has asked me to do, in that way I can be more pleasing to him and I can worship him a, a high, by a higher means at a higher level, if you will. Some disparage doctrine in favor of the spiritual life. But Paul, however, taught that spiritual growth in Christ is dependent on faithfulness to sound doctrine, for its truths provides the means of growth. And you can see that in Colossians 2.6. And the Apostle John developed three tests for discerning authentic spirituality. Believing right doctrine in 1 John 2, obedience to right doctrine in 1 John 2.28, and giving expression to right doctrine with love in 1 John 2 and 7. And so, in conclusion to this point, faithful obedience and love then are not alternatives to sound doctrine. I cannot love the Lord and be faithful and obedient to Him except that I have the truth, which is the instruction and teaching 
of the Word of God. That is doctrine. And so I cannot live a, a, a pleasing, obedient, faithful life to Him except that I have that in my life. Doctrine is not contrary to relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not contrary to experiencing His presence in the Holy Ghost. It's not contrary at all. And as a matter of fact, it takes you into a deeper place of understanding, of knowledge, of beauty of who the Lord is so that you can worship Him at a high, by a higher means and at a deeper level when you come to that greater knowledge of the Word of God. Secondly, Scripture is profitable for reproof. This means conviction or rebuke for wrong behavior or wrong belief. It always implies the presentation of evidence. The Scriptures expose sin that can then be dealt with through confession and repentance. The Word of God is useful. It's profitable to peg you to the wall and say, you have sin in your life. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Listen, I'm not a mind reader. Nobody else in here is a mind reader. I don't know what's going on in your life, your personal life, what you face, the challenges, how, how, how maybe you're, you, you've messed up or what secret sin is in your life. But the Holy Spirit knows. The power of the Word of God, when it's presented, untainted, unashamedly presented, it will take care of the problem of sin. It will convict in the person who is guilty of any kind of unrepentant sin. He will peg that to the wall. That is because it's living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, we all know this scripture, for the word of God is living. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And furthermore, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You stand as though you are naked and you can hide nothing when you are exposed to the truth of the word of God. And where the word of God is not supreme and lauded and rightly divided and the full counsel of God is not given, people will always be comfortable in their sin. I will always be comfortable in my sin if I cherry pick the scriptures. If I read it how I want to read it. If I don't allow the scriptures to confront the carnal nature, to confront self, to confront who Stephen is. If I don't allow that to confront and to expose and to divide and to put his finger on those things, then sin will never be rooted out. But the word of God is profitable for that. I would just encourage every one of us, if you have an unsaved family member, unsaved co-worker, classmate, whatever it is, sometimes we can get a little frustrated and not understand why is it not getting through to them. But just, just stand upon this fact, this truth, that if you will maintain gospel purity, doctrinal purity, if you will maintain proclamation of the pure word of God, it will do its job. It's not your job to convict. It's the Holy Spirit that will reprove people of sin. And that means he will convict. He will bring up, he will expose sin in somebody's life. They may not even know it's there. He'll pull it out and he'll put it before them as if it's a courtroom and say, you are guilty of this. And you can't run away. You can't hide. It's, it's right there in front of you. And he does that. The Holy Spirit, using the word of God, he 
reproves people of sin. And we know that the Holy Spirit who wrote the Word of God, He works in conjunction with the Word of God. He has come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. And that is His work. And when the Word is presented, the truth of the Word of God, He comes upon that Word and He makes it effective in the one who would receive it. And He convicts that person of that truth. He makes it a reality in that person's eyes because they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually dead, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that they can can realize they are dead in their trespasses and sin, that they are blinded by the God of this age and they need salvation, that they're not good, they are wicked and wretched, and they need a Savior. And if you do not present the unadulterated Word of God, people will not get saved because you're telling them they're good when they're not. But the Word of God will expose sin Tell us who we really are. Tell us who Jesus really is. And point to us the remedy that is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Second, thirdly, the word of God is profitable for correction. This word correction, here's what it means. It means restoration of something to its proper condition. The verb from which the noun is derived signifies to instruct or chastise. And the Amplified says to correct someone of error and restoration to obedience. It is correction with the intention of putting this individual in their proper place and right condition. It is coming alongside and correcting with the intention of restoring. If you recall in John chapter 15 where he talks about the branch and the vine. He says, I am the vine, the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He corrects, he purges, he prunes. He pulls things out of your life. He corrects those things in your life so that you can be healthier, so that you can be more fruitful. It's kind of like this. It's it's when I have any of my kids who may be playing together at home. Right now, um, I've got Lily and Oliver. They can play well together, and sometimes they don't play so well together. And now we've got Henry now where he knows how to defend himself, and he he likes to bite sometimes. He knows how to defend himself. But if they're, they're in there playing, and then you start hearing one of them crying and one of them yelling, he hit me, he did this, she did that. And I figure out who, who the lawbreaker is, and I go in there, and I realize one of them has, has done something wrong against their brother or sister. I, I, I have to discipline them. Sometimes it requires for you to spank them. Sometimes it requires for you to put them in time out, depending on the offense. And, and, and for a moment, you are correcting them. But they're not, they're not going to stay in, in time out in, in perpetuity. Eventually, I'm going to restore them back to their playtime. Because I'm trying to restore them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to correct them of what they've done wrong. Say, don't talk like this to your brother or sister. We need to be nice. It makes Jesus happy. Don't hurt Jesus' heart. Don't disobey your parents. Let's be nice. Let's be kind to each other. Let's love each other. And then I restore them back to what they were doing in hopes that the situation will be solved and they will love their brother. She will be kind to her, her brother. You understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's correction with the intent of restoration. So he pulls those things out of you so that you might be more fruitful. And then lastly, 
scriptures are profitable. The word of God is, is profitable for instruction in righteousness. Instruction in righteousness. The Amplifier puts it like this. Learning to live in conformity to God's will, both publicly and privately, behaving honorably with personal integrity and moral courage. This word instruction in its original uses, usage was refer, is, is referring to the training of a child. And scripture provides positive training in godly behavior, not merely rebuke and correction of wrong behavior. So to instruct us in righteousness means this, that scripture provides positive training in godly behavior and not merely rebuke and correction of wrong behavior. How many of you have ever read scripture, read a portion of scripture, and you've thought, I have struggled with this and I cannot do it? And the fact of the matter is, you cannot in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own power. You can't. And you don't even know how in your flesh. But by the mercy of God, the word of God, he instructs you. He helps you. He comes alongside you. And he doesn't just in the negative rebuke and reprove you, but he comes to positively train you and instruct you in the way of righteousness and tells you how you can do it, how you can live righteously, how you can live holy. The word of God is not just one who points out your faults and your inadequacies and your sin and wretchedness, but it comes and provides a means by which you can live in victory. When I was little, I'm going to close here in a moment. Come help me, Seth. Come play something. When I was little, learning to play uh, baseball in Little League, I didn't have much patience growing up as a little guy. If ever I was to learn something new, I had very, very little patience, and I would get easily frustrated and irritated that I couldn't do it and I can just see myself, the same house that my parents live in, the same house I grew up in, I can just see myself with, with a glove on my hand, my dad teaching me how to throw and catch and how to hit the ball, and I can just see, it's like I'm there right now, I can just see myself with my, my shoulders down, my hands down, saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. And whatever it was, whether it was how to catch properly or throw properly or hit properly, I can just see myself right now being so irritated and frustrated that I could not do it properly. I couldn't get it. And do you know how my father responded? Did he just go on and on and say, you're right, you can't do it. Let me tell you how wrong you are. And rebuke and reprove me and, and, and tell me how bad I am. Do you think my father did that? No. No, what he did was he came up beside me and said, now, son, you put your hand in the glove this way. You hold it that way. You, you put your, your stance like this when you go to bat. And he comes alongside me, and he shows me how to do it. Not just where I'm wrong, not where I'm inadequate, but he shows me how in his strength, by his wisdom, by his might, by his power, he shows me how to do it. And he does it with encouragement. He does it with the hand of a father. He does it with the caring uh, hand of a shepherd who loves his sheep. When times get hard, the hireling flees. But the good shepherd lays his life down for the street, sheep. 
He will bear with them. He's forbearant. He desires to instruct them, even for the stubborn ones. He's going to help them. He's going to be forbearant. He's going to be long-suffering. He's going to instruct them because his desire is for us to walk in righteousness. It instructs us in righteousness and shows us, here's how you do it. So the Word of God shows us how to live righteously and godly because we cannot in our own wisdom and strength. And you saw this continuously throughout the period of ministry with Jesus and the disciples, don't you? They, they, they're just things they just couldn't get. And while he rebuked them, on the other hand, he always encouraged and instructed them, didn't he? He did everything he could to prepare them. There were times where he had to rebuke, but continuously he desired to instruct them and prepare them for what was coming. Lastly, look here at verse 17. I close with this. And here's the final result. Now, this, this scripture, this last verse, it applies to the pastor. It applies to the preacher. But it applies to every Christian as well. The woman of God, the man of God, the individual who is a child of God. Here's the intended and the end goal. Here it is, verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, that is not lacking, mature, Thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the Lord's desire that we would walk in good works. We are his workmanship prepared for good works so that our lives may testify as to the saving work of Jesus in our lives. The word of God must be supreme. And it is by the word of God that we are nourished that we are encouraged, that we are challenged, that we are corrected, that we are reproved, that we're instructed, that ultimately we come to truth. It's imperative you know what you believe. Otherwise, you will believe anything. You'll fall for anything. You'll fall for every trick of the enemy. That's why doctrine is so important. That's why knowing what the Word of God says is so important. Not, and of course, not just having it in your head, not just memorizing scripture, but really knowing it and experiencing for yourself. Is it a reality in your life? Are you living the word of God? Not just do you understand it in your head, are you living it? Because it's God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. Is it active and real and, and powerful in your life and it's moving and it's churning and it's challenging you and it's making you more like Jesus? Is it, is it real and effective in your life? Let's examine ourselves here tonight. Let's make ourselves subject even more so to the Word of God. Let us be a church who love the Word of God, who contend for truth, who love truth, and who desire, who desire to be like Jesus.